Good evening, everybody. That was the coolest father and duo there, hey? Leading us in worship. Very, very cool. Danielle's going to sing backing vocals for the closing song, right? Yeah? She'd be into that? Just tell her to. Yeah, okay. Can someone pass that on to her? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that was really good. Um, look, you don't have to, well, really anybody, anybody, uh, everybody on the planet, here's what I'm trying to say, everybody on the planet uh, is compelled by stories, right? Everybody is compelled by stories. Here's a question for you. How much would you pay to be written into a famous novel? If you had the opportunity to be written into a famous novel and immortalized in the story, how much would you pay for that? Well, there was a nonprofit organization just a few years ago that put that before people. They could donate. It would go to their, their good cause, and they would be immortalized. The winning uh, purchaser would, would be immortalized in a Stephen King novel. Their name written in to the story and the winner paid, I think, just over $25,000 to receive literary immortality by ironically being killed off in King's story. <laughs> but it's interesting to think, right? It's interesting to think that people would pay big money to be written into a famous story. I think it actually reflects a longing deep in our hearts, a longing to find our place in a story bigger and better than our personal story. Babette Buster, she, she said this, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. And I agree with her. We live for stories. And she's saying whoever tells the best one wins. Now, I'm a pastor, so maybe you're expecting this from me, but I believe this is the best story ever. Like the best story ever. Ever. It's the most amazing story, and in the Bible contains the greatest story that there is. But I have to confess this at the same time, our telling of it, pastors included, our, our, our telling of it hasn't always been the best. So while I would contend this is the best story that there is, I would also say, out of the other side of my mouth, we haven't always done the greatest job telling it. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous 20th century preacher from London. He preached this. He said, there is something radically wrong with dull and boring preachers. How can a man be dull when he is handling such themes? I would say, he goes on, that a dull preacher is a contradiction in terms with the grand theme and message of the Bible. Dullness is impossible. But, have you ever been to a dull church, a dull pastor, and sat and heard a dull sermon? You guys are saying yes a little too heartily here. You go, you go to this church, don't you? <laughs> and I got to say, Chris Battle, is the, your routine preacher is one of my favorites. I really enjoy his teaching. And so you are really, really blessed here. And so I agree with Lloyd-Jones, though. This should not be a dull church with a dull preacher preaching a dull sermon. It shouldn't happen because this is the greatest story that there is. It's the best story that there is. And there's this longing in the heart of all of us to be a part of a story bigger than our own. 
personal story, a story that's big enough to incorporate and add meaning to our individual experiences. Now, the best story, the Bible story, reveals to us that God has a divine purpose at work behind everything that takes place, and to know the story, to know this story, is to make sense of life and the world. If you can understand the story, the best story going, the greatest story, then it helps you make sense of your life and the world. So at the risk of being a dull preacher, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson, okay? Some of you hear history lesson and you're like checking out. (laughs) Okay, yes, someone's excited about history. Here we go. Here's a little sliver of history. In the late 1800s, there was a group of, of liberal German theologians who, who started to attack the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And, and they did this primarily at an academic level. And so they would, uh, they would attack uh, the fundamentals of the Christian faith this way. They would, they would start to pose arguments like this. They would say, the Bible's full of errors. It's not God's word. And they would say things like, people are not fundamentally sinful, They're good. And they would say, the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen. It was just symbolic or it was just an illusion. Or they would say, Jesus didn't have to die for our sins on the cross. He was actually a victim rather than laying his life down. And so they were were poking holes in what we would consider the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Well, in response to this, again in the 1800s, a number of Christian leaders rose up to defend these fundamentals of the Christian faith, and they wrote a series of documents on the fundamentals of Christianity in response to liberal theologians. Can anyone guess what that movement came to be called? I've been saying a word over and over again. They became known as fundamentalists. Now, I want you to hear, here, here's what its point was, fundamentalism. Here's what its point was. Its point was not to be a holistic picture. It wasn't to give the whole spectrum of the story. It wasn't the point of fundamentalism at the time. It was to respond to a few points that that these liberal theologians were making. Now, fundamentalism, uh, from that came something known as evangelicalism. A little more history lesson here. Evangelicalism. And we would consider this an evangelical church. Now, I would argue at the same time that these terms need to be redeemed, no? Not a lot of us want to be pegged as fundamentalists and even evangelicals, right? But evangelical has always taught, the heartbeat of that is that salvation is at the very center of the faith, very center of the church. It's a great thing. But over time, fundamentalists have become to be known kind of rogue or evangelicals kind of rogue. About, and you need to vote for this political party and you need to be about these things. And we're going to, you know, and it kind of has gone off. I think we need to redeem that. But, but, but what we understand, what I want you to hear is that the whole story of the Bible is about creation, God's goodness. It starts in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3. And then we deal with the issue of sin. And then we come to God's redemption. And then we talk about our future. But fundamentalism, because it was a response to particular areas of, of really salvation, it chopped off the beginning and the end of the best story ever. It was merely meant to be a response. But what happened in following is that fundamentalists and the evangelicals forgot to put the two parts of the story, the beginning and the end, back on. And so what's happened a lot of the time 
in chopping off the beginning and the end because they weren't the issues that were really being challenged at the time. As a result, the questions that were totally or were traditionally asked about why are we here and what's gone wrong and what's going to fix things and what's the whole gospel were were reduced down to you're a sinner, you need salvation, and heaven's better than the alternative. It's less hot. (laughs) And that was it. Like that was, that's what evangelicalism kind of came to be known as. I used to make fun of my dad when he was, when I was a teenager and I still do because when, that's what sons do, right? But uh, I would look over at him while we were watching a movie and inevitably partway through the movie, he would have fallen asleep. And so I'd throw a piece of popcorn at him or say, dad, dad, wake up, wake up. But here's the problem is that father time is catching up with me now and I routinely fall asleep during movies or shows, right? Emily's here. She will wake me up regularly and say, oh, did you fall asleep? And I'll be like, what's going on? What happened? What did I miss? Right? Fill me in. I went to uh, the opening of a Star Wars movie a couple years ago with some buddies and we went to the late show and I say it started at 10. It was something like that. It started at 10. I don't remember anything past 10, 10. I think I saw two previews and then gone. I know Star Wars took place. I know I went to a Star Wars movie. No idea what the plot was. No idea what took place. Now, when we don't know the big story of the Bible and where individual stories fit in with it, we're often lost and don't know what to make of it. What do I make of this obscure story in the Old Testament? This just sounds strange. What do I do with this? We're we're troubled by it. We don't know where to place it. We don't know how it fits. And because we haven't been taught often the whole Christian story, I, I really believe we have a whole generation that is looking and trying to make sense of God and Jesus and culture and the world, and they're not quite sure how it all fits together. And so we're embarking on a four-week series uh, called The Greatest Story. Because a good story has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The plot makes the story, and the better the plot, the better the story. Some of my favorite movies in recent years are indie films, independent films. The budgets are usually really small, but, but sometimes they're just my favorite movies. You know why? Because it really always comes down to the story, not the budget. If the story's good, the plot is good, it's going to be a good film. It's going to be a good novel. It's going to be, right, a great story. So we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at the best plot line there is in the greatest story, these four movements of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So the biblical story begins at the beginning, literally, The middle has a myriad of twists and turns, setbacks and absolutely incredible advances. And then there's a happy ending. But it's not an ending that comes cheap easily. What we're doing in the next four weeks is we're we're essentially looking at the Bible in four chapters. Sometimes this is referred to as the meta-narrative of the Bible, the big picture of the Bible. From eternity before time, or yeah, to, to eternal future, right? An enormous story. We're breaking it down into creation, fall, redemption, and restoration because it helps us get a handle on this amazing story. These four movements to the plot line show up all over the pages of the Bible and grasping the meta-narrative, the big picture of the Bible helps us make sense of all the various stories and details we come across in the scriptures and also helps us make sense of our lives. 
The full, robust gospel story answers the deep philosophical and spiritual questions people wonder about. How did we get here? What's the purpose of life? Are people basically good or evil? Is there hope in the world? What happens when we die? And what does the future hold? And there's no story. There's no story like the Bible's story. Apart from Jesus, these questions, I don't think, can be answered consistently and satisfactorily. Therefore, this isn't just another story to take or leave, but it's the story we all find ourselves in and that most compellingly and convincingly answers the deep questions we all have. So tonight, we're going to spend our time looking at this first movement in the story, creation. Like I said, the reason it's important to have the whole story is because the middle parts, particularly the fall, only speak to our brokenness and not our purpose. And they only speak to our fallen condition and not our created condition, which means when you start a dialogue with culture and all you tell them is what's wrong with them, instead of who they were born, you're going to end up with a story that loses culture and lacks robust vision for ourselves. We don't want to start the story part way and say, what's We want to start the story and say, do you know why you were born? Do you know why you've been made? It's a more compelling story. So this morning, we're looking at God's good creation. We're looking at what culture is, or tonight, there we go. We're looking at what culture is. I was making fun of James before. Tonight, I have this morning even written in my notes, what culture is uh, and also the original calling given by God. The greatest story begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, we'll have it on the screen, as parts of it on the screen as well, but we're going to look right at the very beginning in the Bible. We're going to look at uh, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. We already see uh, an issue at the very beginning in verse 2 of the Bible. It says, "The, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. We see three issues that creation addresses right out of the gate, formlessness, void, and darkness. In ancient literature, we discovered that the seas were viewed as chaos and full of of threat and, and mystery. But the biblical creation account reveals God addressing the darkness and void and chaos, not with a fight, but with a word. God merely speaks into the void and things appear. Creation is made. The opening scenes of the Bible reveal an all-powerful God who speaks and the universe appears out of nothing. Then in verse three, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And this pattern just continues over and over and over again. And like an artist admiring his handiwork, God looks at his stunningly beautiful world and joyfully declares, it's good. There's repetition not to be missed in the creation account. If you look, you see, and God said, and God said, and God said, and and God blessed, and God made. What we're supposed to see is that creation points to God's existence. When you look at the stars, or out across the water, or up at the mountains, or down from the mountains, it's all testimony of God in creation of a creator God. Now, while the creation is stunning, we're meant to see by this stunning creation that there is a creator behind it who's even more glorious. 
Seeing God as creator is a major aspect of who God is. In the Apostles' Creed, he's described this way, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I think those are the three, three great descriptors to talk about God as Father, as Almighty, right? All-powerful, a maker of heaven and earth, a creator. That's who God is. And the creation reveals God's goodness and his greatness. Now, creation's kind of like a road sign. It's not the thing, but it points you to the thing. The created world, as beautiful as it is, is meant to be a signpost, is meant to be a road marker, pointing us to the even greater thing, the actual destination we're meant to land on. See, all of God's creation is one big call to praise him. Just driving here tonight. This is, hey? Driving along the phrase, seeing it, and then being surrounded by mountains here and Lake Iraq just a stone's throw away. What a beautiful spot this is. But it goes on. We see later in Genesis 1, next God creates the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, and they lived in perfect harmony with God and each other. Let me read verses 1 to 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I say that when God gets to this part, he creates the pinnacle of creation for a couple of reasons. First, we see God made them male and female in his image. God made a lot of magnificent creatures, right? Lions and whales and hummingbirds and sloths, right? Interesting animals, beautiful animals. But God made nothing else in his image, Now, after the fall, this is just conjecture by me, but after the fall, God creates cats. Am I right? (laughs) I don't have any proof of that. That's just, that's just, I feel that one. But none of these creatures, none of the other creatures apart from humanity that you ever could look at, even be stunned by, see their beauty or see their power or see how, how useful they are or whatever, none of them are made in the image of God like humanity are. God made people in his image. The second thing I wanna point out about these verses I just read is that God gave human beings everything we need to fulfill our purpose of bearing his image. He gave us everything we need to fulfill our purpose in bearing his image. Subduing is the language and having dominion is the language over the earth and obeying him. God made the first humans with the capacity to rule over the complex world wisely as an act of stewardship. When God put them in the garden and commanded them to have dominion over it, he gave them all they needed to do the job. This ties into our purpose and why we're here. God gave them a mandate right after creating them to tend, to subdue, to have dominion over this beautiful world. If you were to flip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we see a really interesting verse. It says, And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is 
pleasant to the sight and good for food. This dual purpose, and I think it's, it's really important that we see this. Packed in this verse are two express purposes in creation. Do you see what they are? Good for food and pleasing to the eye. We have such a creative, loving God that he doesn't just create things to be useful. He also creates them to be beautiful, to take our breath away. He's, he's that creative and he's that, he's that caring. See, in the usefulness of the creation, we have the resources we need to live. And God's done that for us. But he also has created the creation beautiful to the eye. And in that beauty of creation, there is beauty and pleasure to be enjoyed. And God meant it that way. That you can eat a really good meal and it's useful, but it's also delicious, right? That we can be creation and, and maybe there's a usefulness to tending our own gardens and things like that. But it's also beautiful, in other words, God not only provides for our needs through creation, he also provides for our enjoyment. And he always meant it that way. He's a good God. I read a, uh, about a painter who spent two years making a series of paintings of a particular tree at different times in different seasons under different conditions. And the locals had barely ever taken notice of that tree until the artist, by, by painting the tree over and over again in different conditions, kind of forced them to notice it. And then they saw it. And then when they saw it, they began to enjoy it. They hadn't even really noticed it previously, but when the artist was stunned by it and kept painting it in conditions, they started to notice it and they started to appreciate it as well. Artists have a way of seeing beauty in what the rest of us oftentimes take for granted, what the rest of us barely notice. See, the world God has made invites us to respond to him in praise and gratitude for the provision and enjoyment we receive from the created world. So I want to invite you, it's just a really practical, really simple application here, but, but for the next week, when, when you are, uh, have your needs met, I want to invite you to just offer a prayer of gratitude to God and say thank you for his provision, for the usefulness of the beautiful creation. But when you enjoy something, when something gives you pleasure and meaning and significance and your heart is warmed by something, thank him then as well. God lovingly gives those gifts to us. These things all reveal the kindness of God. Uh, last week, I was speaking at a conference in the interior, and so I, I drove there last Friday afternoon, and then I drove home Saturday night, and I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because I was driving alone with no kids in the car. You, I've driven the same route before, but usually one arm is in the back trying to separate boys from piling on each other, and I'm quite distracted, or it was just the solitude of it all, and, or maybe it was that I knew I was going to be preaching this sermon, but I... Like that painter inviting me to just notice all the details in creation, I, just, I did that four-hour drive, right, back-to-back -back days, and just started to notice stuff, right? The details in the rock formations on the mountain, right? The, the little waterfalls and the details along the little shushwap as I got to drive right along. Like, it's unbelievable. God is so, so good. So what does this movement of of the greatest story teach us about God, his creation. Well, it teaches us that he's powerful, 
He's transcendent. He's directly involved in his creation, but he's not part of that creation. He stands over it. He's a personal being who delights in his creation, and he's holy. That God is holy means he's set apart, that he alone is God. And we see this in the creation narrative. In the instructions God gives Adam and Eve, we see that God is to be glorified through obedience by our submission to his gracious, gracious reign. So what does that mean? Well, the glory of God is his holiness revealed, right? We see in the story that God is set apart. He is other. There's no one like him. God is holy. When we say that God is glorious, that means that we're catching a glimpse of his holiness. And what is the holiness of God? Well, the holiness of God is everything that he is, all of his attributes, that all of those things together make him holy, make him totally other, totally set apart. And in the opening pages of the Bible, I really think that they resonate with us because we know that we were made for this kind of world, right? Do you feel that? As you see this good creation that over and over again, this loving God, this personal God creates, and he says it's good, there's something that resonates in that first bit of the story because we know we were made for this kind of world. Now, next week, we'll look at the reality that we also feel that the world's gone wrong. But what that also indicates to us is that we were created for a world that's right. Whenever we're confronted with injustices, there's something inside of us that says, this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And that's because we were made for a Genesis 1 and 2, one and two world. And I want to give you a little spoiler for a few weeks from now, right? Restoration. That's why our hearts long for a Revelation 21 and 22 world that things would be set right again. We long for that in our souls. And the gospel itself explains this longing for Eden by telling us that in the beginning, God created a world that he declared to be good. Now back to these verses, in, in uh, verses 26 to 28 in Genesis 1. We see that God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion essentially over the seas, the skies, and the earth. In other words, we were created to create and to cultivate. And in doing that, we were created in that way to reflect God's goodness and his truth. It's tied into being made in the image of God, to create and to cultivate. And we are to do that in such a way that, that society flourishes, our community flourishes through the things that we do. What's, what's happening in, in, in uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we're given what the, theologians often call a creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Now, we in the church talk a lot about the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations and baptize them. And we should. And as the series goes on, we'll be reminded how vitally important that is. But what I want you to realize tonight is that before sin before the need for redemption, before anything, God gave another great commandment. He gave another commission. And that is the commission to create culture. Herman Bavinck, the Dutch theologian, said, Genesis 1.26 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his, in his image. Namely, that man should have dominion over all living creatures and that he should multiply and spread out over the world, subduing it. 
If now we comprehend the force of this subduing under the term culture, now generally used for it, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. So what is culture? Culture is the beliefs, behaviors, values, language, intellectual achievements, artistic expression, and entire way of life of a particular group of people. That's culture. There are many cultures in the earth, but, but a culture consists of all of those things. Culture derives from the Latin word colere, which means to plow or to till, and pertains to the cultivation, care, and tending of plants and animals. In a religious sense, the word cultus means to revere or venerate with a worshipful religious component to it. So all of these together mean this. Every culture has a center of significance, of importance, right? that thing they revere in the culture, and then everything else is shaped around the center of that culture. So why does culture matter? Culture matters because this is why God made you. You were made in his image with a job description. Nancy Piercy puts it this way. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. In other words, we take these raw elements of the earth put there by God. He's the one who created out of nothing. We create out of the raw materials that God created. And as image bearers, out of those materials... We create and we cultivate. And out of the chaos of raw elements, we order them together until culture is formed. We're gonna look at a few pictures here together. Here's the first one. What we see here from right, the heavens, from space, is we see this world that God created. But we don't only see that, do we? What do we see? We see cities shining, we see electricity, we see lights. Right? What we see is that we already, as cultivators, as creators, are saying out to the heavens, we're here. We're here. See, this is what, this is the culture, this is the creation, the cultivation that we are a part of. What is music? Let's go to the next one. What is music? Well, music is taking the raw elements of sound and ordering them and structuring them in such a way as to make music. I don't know if you've ever heard young children play the violin, like learn the violin or the piano or the drums. I just want to tell you that's not music, that's noise, okay? What is music? Music is, is taking the, just the raw, like, sound and creating something that moves the heart. That's, that's music. That's why Bach, Bach understood this, J.S. Bach understood this, and that's why he signed all of his music, SDG, which was uh, to symbolize soli deo gloria, which means for the glory of God. He would take the raw materials of, music, of sound and create music, and he did it for the glory of God. That, that, that was why we, he was made. That's why we are made. What's, what's, what's this next one here? Well, Mennonites would say that's sin. That's what that is, right? No. Uh, this is the, taking, the raw, taking the raw elements of movement, 
and creating something called dance, right? When I try and take the raw elements of movement, it's, it's nothing close to dance or anything that's beautiful, but some people are able to take these raw elements of movement and order, the, order them together into beautiful expression that can be stunning. What is this next one? This next one is architecture. It's taking the raw stuff of earth and forming it into these incredible structures, both useful and beautiful. What is science? What is technology? Well, it's the discovery of elements that exist in the world, and it's developing those into technology, which, among other things, help us, helps us explore the universe and also tweet stuff. You know, it's, it's amazing what we can do with science and technology. What is law and government? Well, these are really the chaos of morality and ordering it together in such a way that people find safety and structure and they thrive. That's why government matters. That's why law matters. What is sports? Well, sports is taking really the chaos of movement, once again, and reshaping it into just a different kind of chaos, I think. I think that's what sports is. It's still, it's still chaotic. But have you ever seen just a, a beautiful golf shot? Like from the tee, lands on the green. Like that's incredible. That's taking kind of the chaos of those kinds of movements, right? And doing something amazing with it. Soccer is often referred to as the beautiful game. Well, what is story? We've been talking about story tonight. Story is taking the chaos of language and words and ordering them in such a way to, as to stir our hearts, to move us through story. What are paintings? What's art? Well, it's taking the raw stuff of paint and colors and splotches and they become works of art. I haven't moved past finger painting. I can't do anything that looks beautiful, but some people can take just these raw materials and do something like that. What is a statue? Well, this is the G-rated version of Michelangelo's <laughs> statue of David. And I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard this, but, but Michelangelo was asked, how did you do that? And you know how he responded? It was there all along. All I did was chip away to reveal it. That's essentially what I'm talking about tonight. In all of these different spheres, this is how culture is created. It's there all along in the raw materials and in the chaos and in the image of God, we were made for this. We were to take those raw materials and we were to fashion, chip away in whatever sphere it might be, chip away at it until this kind of thing appears. Timothy Keller said, we are, this is what we are, this is what we're doing, this is why we're here. We are rearranging the raw elements of a particular domain, I, I listed a few, to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. We are rearranging the raw elements of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. In other words, your work matters. Your creativity matters. You're an image bearer of God and you get to invest in areas of culture for the flourishing of others. 
Your vocation, your work, it's not just about putting food on the table, although it's useful for that. It's also for beauty. It's also for the calling that you were originally created for. Dorothy Sayers said, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? And she recognized that our faith doesn't actually, if that, that our faith does actually speak to our work and every aspect of our lives. There's no sacred and secular divide. We get to go about, right, using our, working with our hands, working with creativity to the glory of God. What an amazing thing. Now, we know that the story goes on from this movement of creation to three more movements of fall, redemption, and restoration. But we must not overlook this part. There is a purpose here that resonates deeply in the human heart because we were made for all of this. John Mark Comer said, we are called to a dual vocation. I think he summarizes why we're here as followers of Jesus well when he talks about us having a dual vocation to take the creation project forward in reference to Genesis 1 and 2, and to help humans come into relationship with the creator, Matthew 28. It's not one or the other, it, it's a dual vocation. And in fact, when we go about working with our hands and working with our creativity for the flourishing of those around us, and we do that as followers of Jesus, it's, a, it's one of the most compelling ways that we can actually point people to that other area in our calling, which is that they might come to know Jesus. Nothing on the planet is more important than knowing Jesus and making him known well, at the same time, that does not negate your purpose of meaningful work, of creating culture for the flourishing of others and glory of God. They're not in competition with each other. They actually complement each other. Now, this isn't the end of the story. Our world isn't united on Jesus as the center of culture with everything being shaped around it, right? We live in contested space. And later in the story, Jesus will come on a rescue mission to redeem his fallen creation. But for now, we observe this. The first movement of the greatest story ever is about God creating a stunning world with humanity as its pinnacle, with a mandate as image bearers of our creator God to create and cultivate culture in community with him and with each other. From early childhood on, we live for stories. Something We don't only live for stories, we also live by them. Meaning, how we understand the story we're in affects how we live. And when it comes to the stories of our lives, here's the irony. When we live as if our own personal story is at the center of our universe, we struggle to find meaning and significance. Which is a challenge for us because in the West, we, we want autonomy. We want to be self-governing. But the irony is that when we try and make ourselves the center of the universe, our lives seem to lack meaning and significance. But when Jesus is at the center and we're pushed to the periphery, it's then that we find true worth and value. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. That's Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. 
That's why Abraham Kipper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Music and the arts, Jesus cries, mine. Architecture, mine. Law and government, Jesus says, mine. Science and technology, mine. Story, Jesus declares, mine. Even before the fall, this Colossians 1 text tells us this. It's all about Jesus. And as the story unfolds, more and more and more and more, we're going to be so convinced. I'm so glad it is. I'm so glad it is all about Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this beautiful creation that we live in. God, you supply our every need and we say thank you but you give us so much pleasure and joy. You are so kind and good to us. And God, as we kind of rediscover again tonight, um, there is meaning in the, the work of our hands and the creativity that we give ourselves to. Lord, I pray that, that, that you would continue to use us in everyday life um, to work towards uh, the flourishing of those around us for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.